When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Get it delivered to your door via Deliveroo or Uber Eats. Hello, this is Football Social Daily. Premier League news and views every day of the Premier League season. I'm Jim Salverson and this is the final Friday show we're going to be doing without there actually being any football to talk about at least until the end of this season the beginning of next season anyway today i'm on the podcast with will brazier hello will afternoon morning i'm just losing all sense of time (laughs) meaning and uh what's going on i've got fergal brennan aka the professor on the podcast as well hello professor hello good morning afternoon evening i'm the same as will i don't even know what time of day it is hello well, right now, it's what time is that? Hang on. It's morning at the moment, but I guess it depends when you're listening to the podcast. Uh, we are, of course, doing this podcast with the help of our sponsors, Gourmet Doner Kebabs as well, who are still serving their delicious German-style Doner Kebabs via takeout and delivery before the restaurants open again. So if you fancy something a little bit different for your tea, you can head online, you can find them on Deliveroo, on Uber Eats, or you can locate your nearest restaurant via germandonerkebab.com. So today... It is Friday, morning or afternoon, evening, whatever. It is the AQA podcast, all questions answered. If you're new to this, it means we don't decide the agenda on the podcast today. You decide the agenda. So get involved on Twitter, at The Sports Social. You can find us on Instagram, Sports Social Official, or you can find all the links to all the social media channels and a whole load of lovely football content as well via our new shiny website, which is sports-social.co.uk. So... We're going to crack straight on with the first questions for today. Very first one comes from Jim Mad L L C C F C on Insta. Not his real name, I assume. He says, when would you class Chelsea as title contenders? He says, personally, I think they're in a good race for the title next season with the extra signings, putting them in a really good position. So Chelsea have been making some... Interesting moves in the transfer market at the moment. Eden Hazard's money clearly burning a bit of a hole in their pockets. They look like they've added Werner to their ranks in recent weeks. That's pending a medical, I understand. Havertz is reported to be pretty close as well. They want Chilwell from Leicester City. So they're strengthening their teams in the right area. 
But does that mean they're going to be able to challenge for the title next season, Will? Um, I think they could potentially get closer than they are this season. I think a lot of people, I think even if I look back at my uh, Premier League predictions that I did for the Sports Social, I, I think Chelsea were lower down the ranks than, than they are now. So Frank's building something, it feels. And I think with the top two teams that with Liverpool and Man City, you feel like they're running away with it. They've got a clear identity. And I think with the signings that they're making and the people that they've been linked with, and even what he's done this season, there feels to be that coming back to Chelsea where maybe they've lacked that over, well, definitely since they last won the title under Conte. So I do think they could push next season. I think it would be a bit of a stretch to to win the league, but I think they can definitely start to cement themselves as a permanent top four fixture where they could yeah, pull away from maybe some of the lesser teams in that top six. With the signings they're bringing in, and we assume there'll be some players leaving as well. Willian's been edging closer to the door for a long time now. But the signings they're making, these big money signings, it's going to be interesting, Fergal, to see how they integrate themselves with what Lampard appears to have been building at Chelsea, which is this young, hungry, passionate English core. Yeah, well, this was always going to be the question that was going to be asked of Lampard. Um, at, the, at the start of the season, all the talk was that he didn't have a transfer window, uh, that he wasn't going to be able to make these big big name signings. Obviously, as you said, the, the Hazard cash kind of sitting in the bank. How he balances the team next season will probably be the decisive factor in, in Lampard's future at Chelsea because he's brought these players through, the likes of Tomori, Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, who's had a, a brilliant season. And now he's realising that in order to be in the Champions League, being a force in the Champions League and in the Premier League, you need a bit of experience. It's all well and good bringing these young players through and he's getting a lot of deserved praise for that. But you need the best players in Europe in your team if you want to then take the next step. And obviously, as Will mentioned there before, you look at Man City and you look at Liverpool, the level that they're at, Chelsea are not there. Two or three players are not going to get them there. It will get them closer, granted. But this is still a building project for Lampard. But it's, it's difficult to gauge how he goes with this because he's got to find a way to keep those young players that have got them where they are this season in the team. But obviously, he's not going to leave Hakim Ziyech, who he's spent a lot of money on, and Timo Werner, who we expect to sign on the bench. So how he balances this will probably make or break the rest of Lampard's career as Chelsea manager. How much credit are we giving Lampard for what he's done at Chelsea so far? Because we say, oh, he's bought these young players through. He's done really well. But at the end of the day, he didn't really have much choice. His hands were tied. He needed bodies. They had the transfer ban. They couldn't bring players in. So the four or five quality youngsters that are playing isn't so much of him identifying them as potential talents it's more a case of well we had to play somebody yeah I think well it's expectation versus output isn't it I think the expectation at the start of the season was if they could get Champions League football that would be a tremendous achievement and currently as we went into the lockdown they're fourth with like a gap of three points so I think a lot of credit should be given to him I think he probably gets more credit because of who he is and he's an English manager who's quite nice. So it's, it's a bit easier to heap a bit of a praise on him. Um, even when he was at Derby, he probably got more than he should have because that was a Derby team that should have been pushing for automatic promotion. So I, I, it's exciting. It's that age-old English thing, isn't it? You, you can be good, but don't get too good because we'll start to bring you down a level or two. There's a follow-up question here I want to ask, which is coming from Cormy MCC, also on Instagram, who, and it's kind of like the other side of the coin here. He says, how long will Frank Lampard last at Chelsea and what does he need to achieve and in what time frame to stay? So I guess 
how much patience does Abramovich have if Chelsea aren't going to be competing next season for the Premier League title, Fergal? I think he'll get probably an extra 12 or 18 months than a, a normal manager would get. Um, I think they're in the race for top four now. They've done relatively well this season, but if this wasn't Frank Lampard in charge, as, as, as Will says, we'd be talking about them hitting par. Chelsea should be Champions League there or thereabouts, and, and they're not. As it stands, they're probably doing relatively well, a bit better given who the manager is. I think if they're not able to repeat this or go a little bit better next season, Lampard will be under big pressure, particularly if they spend a lot this summer. I think his status as a club legend and loved by the fans will give him a little bit of an extension, but we've seen that Abramovich has, has very little time for this sentimentality. He'll give it maybe another six, maybe another 12 months because of who he is. Um, but if they're not right there with Liverpool and, and making a real stride in the Champions League, I think it will be bye-bye Frank. But I think in fairness to Chelsea and to the Chelsea supporters, given the level of success that he had as a player there, unless he gets them relegated, which obviously isn't going to happen, I don't really see his, his star falling that much. You know, he, he survived playing for Manchester City and still manages to be a club legend. I, I don't really see his reputation being damaged, um, but I don't see Lampard giving him an absolute uh, free wheel to kind of allow them to slip into the Europa League spots. I'd say about a half a season to a season extra uh, is about all he can hope for. I think he is performing above expectation this season. I think anyone who'd have got that job wouldn't be wouldn't have been expected to finish fourth. So I think he has exceeded expectation this year, which maybe probably buys him a bit more time in the bank. I don't, I don't really know what their expectations are. How can you realistically think that they Roman Abramovich can think they can challenge those two? Because it's the back as well, isn't it? You think before we go into the lockdown, we had Willie in goal for Chelsea and over an £80 billion goalkeeper. I guess it yeah. depends how interested Abramovich is. I guess that's that's the kind yeah. of the question mark, isn't it? Because when he's interested and engaged, he's spending money and he wants the club to kick on. He doesn't seem to have been that engaged over the last few seasons. And if he does get engaged and he seems to be spending money again, so maybe that's a sign he is, at some point he's going to come up against the irrefutable truth that they have Frank Lampard as manager. And if they spend 300 million quid <clears> and catch <throat> Liverpool and catch Manchester City in terms of squad depth and squad quality... They've still got Frank Lampard and manager. And as good as he might be and as good as he might become, he's not Jurgen Klopp and he's not Pep Guardiola. And he might be one day, but at the moment, these guys remain streets ahead. They remain geniuses in that field, whereas Lampard is Frank Lampard. The positive from that is that they're heading in, in that direction, whereas before, I feel with Chelsea, they just maybe planned for one season ahead and like splash the catch, mm. get the players in that they can know can perform. And then you're left with about five to six 30-year-olds on one year of contract who they can't sell and they've lost the money on them. So I feel with where they're going, Frank's, maybe it's because of who he is, but he's been uh, allowed to sell a vision that maybe can come to fruition in about, what, two to three years' time? Right, I think we've skirted around answering that question with any certainty. So I think we can move on to the <laughs> next question, which uh, you've got, Will. Yes, it is from Wild0507. He says... Will there be a pre-season tour competition for big clubs if there isn't much room between the end of the league and the start of the new one? If not, they should help smaller teams by playing friendlies against them. Jim, what do you think? I can't see a scenario right now where they'll be playing, playing friendlies at the end of this season, at the beginning of this season. And we don't quite know how the timescale is going to look yet. We don't know how long they'll be between the end of this current season, if indeed this season does end and the beginning of next season, but it doesn't look like it's going to be 
very much. And then are they going to want to spend that three, four weeks going off to, say, for example, the Far East to play a pre-season tour? I don't think they will in terms of A, the challenge that presents and B, the travelling. I also don't think there's many benefits in them doing that anymore because the main objective of going and playing a tour in South Korea, for example, isn't that you're testing yourself against the best opposition and you get yourself match fit. It's that you're trying to scoop up another portion of the world and bring them into your club and build a relationship with those fans. So if you can't have fans in the stadium, which you won't be able to, I don't think, by then, if you can't do photo opportunities, if you can't do meet and greets and you can't do signings, it kind of negates the point in doing one of those big tours. So I don't think we'll see that. I don't think Premier League clubs are also going to help out the little teams because, again, similar scenario, what actually can the little teams benefit from? Because they're not going to be able to get gate receipts for Manchester United visiting, visiting don't know, Farnborough Town or whoever it happens to be. So there's not really much value in that. I think what we might see is kind of a scenario like the World Club Championships. So you've got the Qataris who are obviously preparing for their World Cup, building massive state-of-the-art stadiums. They're going to want to prove they can host games. They're going to want to prove they can put on big occasions. And we might see a just-for-television and a few Qatari people in posh boxes up in the stands. Might see kind of a special little tournament between Premier League games. I think that's probably the extent of the big pre-season friendlies we're going to see this year for me. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think Jim nails it there. This, this idea that the big lads are going to help the small lads out and the, the you know the smaller teams are going to see these massive gate receipts because Manchester United turn up at their their 500-seater ground. Money rules the roost in these situations. I think the big clubs, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, City, etc., if they can squeeze some sort of a summer tournament where they can generate some income from... like. These teams make a huge amount of money from uh, pre-season tours to the Far East or the United States or Australia. If they can even squeeze a week or two weeks, the sheer amount of money that they get from that, the, the business people involved in, in all of the big clubs will be saying, is there any chance, you know, before the season starts, you know, quick quick week to Qatar or quick week here or quick week there. Um, in terms of kind of keeping it native and keeping it in the UK and, and pumping money back into the lower levels of football, I don't see it happening. You know, I think we can all agree we'd like to see um, everybody helping each other out. But football at the highest level, as you know, we all know, generally doesn't work that way. We kind of need to bear in mind that Premier League teams aren't going to put their hands in their pocket and help out lower league teams. As you say, it doesn't really work that way. Their businesses in their own right and businesses don't, if they've got any sense, go, well, here's a load of our cash to help out another company, which I guess is a kind of a rival business. So, the benefits of the lower league teams, and we are going to see lower league teams struggling, is that the Premier League keeps on making money, unfortunately, and it keeps, and we don't see Premier League teams going going out of business because although there isn't as much trickle down as we'd all like to see in the lower leagues, and the support isn't there, there is some element of trickle down, and for the lower league teams, a lot of their budgets, or a lot of their financial income, comes from being able to sell players, for example, to Premier League teams. And for Premier League teams to still be able to afford to invest in those players is going to be very important for the future of a lot of Division One, Division Two, Championship even clubs, I think. Also, logistically, there's not going to be too much of a break anyway. And we've already right. seen the dangers of like Man United going to Stoke, wasn't it? And obviously Michael <laughs> O'Neill getting coronavirus. So that had to be pulled. So they'll, they'll be limiting the risk that way. And they've, they've just come <laughs> off of what would be three, four month break anyway, won't they? So I think it'll just yeah. be a quick turnaround. 
get back on with it. There's a lesson there. Don't go to Stoke. <laughs> <laughs> Stay alert. Don't go to Stoke. Uh, Fergal, you've got the next question. Uh, yeah, this is kind of follow, uh, kind of following on from the theme of um, summer tournaments. So Dean uh, via Instagram asks, what do you think of a British cup competition, including Scottish, Irish and Welsh teams? So I'm not sure if he's meaning a, a pre-season tournament or something that could be included in 2020-21. Um, I don't think any of us are really old enough to remember the Anglo-Welsh or Anglo-Irish Cup that that took place many, many, many moons ago. Um, this is an interesting concept, and it you know kind of feeds into the conversations that have been had about Scottish teams coming into the English Premier League. Obviously, Welsh teams play in the the English league system, and we've got the likes of Cardiff and Swansea who've been Premier League sides. Will I'll, I'll go with you first on this? Cup competitions in the last. The last few years, probably maybe even going back towards the last decade, uh, have taken a bit of a bit of a beating. They've lost a bit of their shine. Do you think something like this could maybe re-inject a bit more life into it? I think domestically, apart from Celtic and Rangers, any of those leagues wouldn't really add anything to our cup competitions. Obviously, I've been fortunate enough to work on the Carabao Cup this season, which is a fantastic and outstanding competition. <laughs> um, but I, I just feel even with what they're trying to do, they're just trying to do things differently. And I think rather than bringing more teams in, we need to look with what we've got so far and think about how that's, how that's distributed and how what we can do differently with that, even like little things, which, you know, going straight to penalties in the Carabao Cup. Um, just the, the, the evening weekday games that the FA Cup have tried. I think it's those things that need to be thought of first before we think of uh, implementing more uh, domestic teams to the competitions. Yeah. One of the things we've said is that the Carabao Cup changing format this season has actually given it a bit of a new lease of life. Like Will said, going straight to penalties and, and that kind of thing has made it a bit more exciting. Do you think, you know, kind of leave it as it is? Yeah, I mean... There's, even with those changes, there's been people suggesting that you should get rid of the League Cup format, that there's too many fixtures being played, that maybe the European teams don't play in the League Cup. So as much as I'd love to see Arsenal rocking up at Port Maddock FC and playing a cup tie, <laughs> I just can't see it. I can't see it being anything that would even be considered on the table. As Will says, beyond Rangers and Celtic, you're not really going to have any of them that are offering any serious competition for the people winning that club. And there's so much pressure on the domestic cups, not just the League Cup as well. I think of, um, I can't remember, what's the Johnson Paint trophy called now? Is it Checker Trade trophy now? The yeah, Leasing.com yeah. trophy. Leasing.com ah. trophy. I mean, I mean, they tried to refresh that by putting the under-21s teams in a few years ago, and it's still, I, I couldn't even tell you who's won it for the last few seasons. So I don't think it's even on the table. I think there's not enough interest, particularly in Welsh and Irish football, sorry, Wales and Ireland, uh, to amalgamate it with the British league competitions. What I would like to see would be a return to the home internationals. I think like a proper five, six nations tournament would be a great addition to the international calendar. It's kind of worked a little bit with the Nations League where they've kind of added a little bit of competitivism to the what would have been friendlies. And I think the next logical step of that would be some kind of home internationals and seeing the England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, etc., facing off on a regular basis, I'd enjoy that. So I'd, yeah, anything we could do, like a Six Nations of International Football, is just, even like you think with the Scotland-Indian game that was 2-2, that was like, felt proper old school international football. Yeah. But yeah, domestically, no chance. I'm hoping you're going to add some balance to this argument, Fergal, with your Gaelic heritage. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to be honest? I, I, I'd, be, I'd, be too, I'd be too frightened to live in England if Ireland got beat by England, Scotland, <laughs> Wales or Northern Ireland. That would be my truth. Um, I think... 
given the situation with the Nations League, like you said, it's injected a little bit of seriousness back into um, kind of half semi-friendly international football. But still, there's so much lethargicness about them. Like, how many times have you asked somebody to explain the Nations League to somebody else? Because we still don't really fully understand what's going on. And you shouldn't have to do that, particularly with international football. One of the best bits about international football is that it's quite straightforward. You don't have to worry about so many things that you have to think about when you're adding up totals in, in league football. And I think, yeah, a kind of five, six nations, home nations uh, tournament would be brilliant. Uh, for me, uh, it'd be tough um, because I, I think ultimately everybody would be such a, a significant amount behind England. Uh, I think it, the most interesting part would be the would be the scrap for second place. Uh, right, we're going to take a little bit of a break now from your questions. Thank you very much. If you want to get them in for next week, at The Sports Social on Twitter is where you can go. You can find us, The Sports Social, on Instagram. And you can find all our social links at the new website, sport-social.co.uk. Also, if you're on Amazon Alexa or you've got a Google Home device with all the fixtures starting next week, they're coming thick and fast. You can keep up to date with match reports, match previews and team news via those devices as well just say alexa open sports social or if you've got google google talk to sports social and you can find all the content in there right we'll be back with more of your questions after this football social daily with german doner kebab fancy something different for tea get takeaway delivery now via Deliveroo and uber eats Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We are answering your questions on the AQA podcasts. All questions answered. Got a few more to get through. And the first one is coming from Fred Cafaro from Brazil. To the bang, Fred. He says, who is the best Brazilian player to ever play in the English Premier League? He also adds, if anyone says David Luiz, he's never going to listen to the podcast again. <laughs> Doesn't have any risk of that at all. Um, I love Brazilians in the Premier League. I think it's just that little bit of magic. I particularly like it when they have really English northern names on the back of their shirts like Joe or Fred. Although I don't think either of them are going to get anywhere near the greatest Brazilian player either that we're going to pick. So, Will, you can go first on this one. Who's your favourite ever Brazilian in the Premier League or the best ever Brazilian in the Premier League? Well, it'd definitely be argued for the best, but my favourite Brazilian to play in the Premier League uh, was uh, Gilberto Silva ah. because a number of reasons. One, I used to play centre midfield before uh, everyone realised I was terrible at football and made my way back to right back. Two, I always used to sign him on Champ Mano 102 because I think he had a release clause which meant he could get him really cheap from his Brazilian team and oh and yeah three he was a really good footballer and he was part of uh, the Invincibles which uh, not many people can say in the Premier League. I've forgotten about Gilberto Silva. Who are you going for, Fergal? Uh, well, I definitely haven't forgotten about Gilberto Silva, hence my, my screen before, because Will, <laughs> Will took my first choice. Um, I'm going to continue the theme of, of defensive midfielders. Obviously, we, when we think of Brazilians, we think of skillful, samba, dribbling round people, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo. Uh, I'm going to go with nice and sensible, consistent Fernandinho. He probably would be second, if I'm being honest, behind Gilberto Silva, but a, a very, very close second. Speak to any Man City fan, they love him. He's been absolutely essential to their success. Uh, and he still is now. Like it, It's always such a measure of players that if Guardiola keeps you past 31, 32, and you, you're still a regular mm. first-team player, then you must be doing something right. He slotted it at centre-back this season when Imeric Laporte's been out injured. 
Um, and, and it'd be unfair to you know kind of throw the old good pro tag around his neck because he's actually a brilliant footballer. Those little dark arts, yes, he, he's excellent at them. But a player like Fernandinho is absolutely essential. If you want a winning team like Manchester City have built, you need a Fernandinho in there that can win the ball, that can turn a game for you, that can you know get in the ear of a few of his teammates. And he's been absolutely brilliant for Man City. Do you think he's been one of the best Brazilians ever in the Premier League, though? I mean, he's certainly been really important to Manchester City. And you only have to look at how their results have suffered when he's not been in the team and how this last season, when he's not been playing that holding role, he's been in that centre-back role. Rodri hasn't quite stepped up to the mark there. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, three winners' medals has he got or something like that? You've got to, yeah, you'd have to make a case for him being the best Premier League player, I guess. I've I've talked myself into it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think to go back to Gilberto Silva, I think Fernandinho has been as important to City as Gilberto Silva was to Arsenal. I think that role, you know, again, it comes back to what we think of when we think of Brazilian players dribbling round people and whacking one in the top corner from forty yards. Fernandinho is still an excellent footballer, really good on the ball, rarely gives possession away. Positionally, he's excellent. Um, and I know he might not be as, as kind of fashionable as Robinho, but, you know, we all remember how that went down or Ilano. You know, I think if we look at some of the Brazilians, particularly that Man City have had, uh, none of them can really hold a torch to Fernandinho for, for importance and for, um, for where he's helped to bring Man City up to. I'm going to show my age with my pick a little bit. And there's definite <clears> tinges of nostalgia about my pick for Janinho who was only, ah. unbelievably, the second Brazilian to play in the Premier League when he joined Borough in the mid-90s. It was kind of the days when foreign players were a little bit special anyway. And signing a Brazilian, not just a Brazilian, a five-foot-five Brazilian, was you just expected him to be magic. And he was. He had quick feet. He had tricks. He had that little bit of magic in his boots. And just he was one of those players when ever he got the ball, you expected something to happen which I think is kind of what you expect from a Brazilian player, isn't it? You expect that little tiny magician bit of activity to kind of just pull something out of the bag. And I love the fact that when Borough won the League Cup as well, he said afterwards that winning the League Cup was more important for him than winning the World Cup, which was obviously complete rubbish, <laughs> but made him an absolute hero in the Northeast. So Janinho was my pick as well. But it did get me thinking, because you look at the amount of players that have come through the Premier League that are Brazilian, and considering the success Brazil have had on the international stage, and they have dominated internationally, you don't get that many Brazilians playing in the Premier League, do you? Why is that? Do they just, is it the weather? Do they just not adapt to the style of play? Would they rather go to Spain and play in La Liga where I, I suppose it's, the conditions are probably more similar to they have in Brazil? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's definitely more suited if you're growing up in Brazil to come across, I mean, what's more appealing, a sunny Madrid or a very rainy, dull Manchester? And yeah, it's probably just, uh, just the way they're brought up, really, isn't it? That Real Madrid or Barcelona is a more attractive move than a. A Man United or a Man City. I suppose the language thing as well probably plays some part. Probably a little bit, yeah. Not that they speak Portuguese in Spain either. <laughs> you get what I mean? I think the kind of mentality towards Spanish clubs is, is different in South America as well. I, I remember this when Coutinho moved to Barcelona and uh, speaking to Liverpool fans who were saying, can you, you know, can he not see what, what we're building here and, and the direction the club is going in? And I think in terms of kids who are fans in South America, the teams that they idolise, the players they idolise, that's Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's not Liverpool or Manchester United. Yeah, there is obviously support there, but I think sometimes we tend to look at these things through a very European eye where we think, why would you not want to play for Manchester United? Well, 
you know, in the eyes of in the eyes of many Brazilian kids, Real Madrid or Barcelona are as big, if not bigger. Right. Let's move on to another question, a bit more topical with this one. Fergal, you've got the next one. <clears throat> yep. Uh, this is from Armand Fori eight nine eight on Instagram. <laughs> uh, bit of a long one. <laughs> Should the away goal rule count for Real Madrid? If the second leg is played in Lisbon, i.e. not a home game in the Champions League, would it be fairer to scrap the away goal rule for these two second leg games? As I say, a bit of a long one there, but essentially what, what he's touching on is this uh, report that's been floating around in the last few days that UEFA are considering a mini tournament in Lisbon to wrap up the Champions League. So that would be the rest of the last 16 games, quarters, semis, and then potentially the final, all completed in, in I think, between 10 days, uh, 10 days and two weeks. So, Jim, go to you first on this one. Liverpool uh, obviously got knocked out by Atletico Madrid. That was the last Champions League game we all remember. Manchester City, Real Madrid was probably almost up there for, for drama. But Real Madrid had go into Manchester in normal circumstances. You'd fancy Man City at home to, to get through and kind of motor on. But given the situation and that everything's so strange at the minute, would it be right to take away any sort of little advantage that a team might have in, in an away goal? I think it's a really difficult situation that UEFA find themselves in because they're tasked now with creating a level playing field when the playing field can't possibly be level. The idea of fairness has just gone completely out the window. And that's that's the stake in the Premier League as well as being in the Champions League. And it's why people are questioning whether the if Liverpool win the title in the Premier League, whether it's a legitimate title, whether it's been unfairly decided, and it'll be the same situation. For me, you can't change the rules halfway through. And essentially, halfway through the legs, so between the first and second leg, is kind of half-time, isn't it? So they're not going to change the type of ball. They're not going to change the playing surface. They're not going to change the minutes on the clock or anything like that. So you can't really change the away goals rule. And although City have already got that advantage in that tie, because they, they scored, was it 2-1? 2-1, yeah. 2-1 in the away league. So they've kind of got that advantage. You can't take that away because they're then losing the advantage of playing at home as well at the Etihad. But then at the same time, Real Madrid would have an advantage by not playing at the Etihad potentially on a neutral venue. So... Maybe you should give them a... I don't know, is, I guess is the answer. <laughs> I mean, I'd say what you're trying to do is create a... You need Stephen Hawking to work this one out. What you're trying to do is create a level playing field for all teams which can't possibly be made level. So I think you just don't change it. You just have to keep the away goes rule for the sake of fairness and for the sake of clarity would be my kind of feeling on that. But I can understand how both Real Madrid fans and Manchester City fans and every other team in the Champions League would feel aggrieved by any kind of decision that's made along those lines. Well, Jim's right in the sense of UEFA are basically trying to uh, roll a bumpy field with a, a bacon rolling pin at the minute in, to sort out these sort of situations that just keep popping up. What is the best way for UEFA to deal with this? Is it this mini tournament idea or do they have to, if they see that La Liga and the Premier League manage to come back and games behind closed doors are, are relatively successful um, and then they try and shoehorn the tournament into August, what is the what is the best way for UEFA to try and manage their way through this situation? Uh, from a fan perspective and speaking to someone who's a fan of the Championship Club, I'd love to see a, a mini tournament put together. I think we've seen them with the MLS. They, I mean, they're going to Disneyland. So, I mean, if it's has to be at Euro <laughs> Disney, so be it. Um, I think that might be the best way. Um, but yeah, no, I think a mini tournament would be the the ideal situation. But then it's it's when it's going to be played. I definitely agree with Jim. You've got to stick with the rules that you had before. But even for like someone like Real Madrid, it's probably 
better for them to get away from the burnabout anyway. If they, if they don't play well after 10 minutes, the fans get on the back. And uh, I mean, we saw last season with Ajax rocking up into town and absolutely demolishing them at the burnabout. It might not be a, a bad thing to play in front of an empty arena. When you look at the Champions League and the way that it's probably going to end up, whether it's this mini tournament or it's, it's going to get moved into August, where do you see, like say, the you know one of the words that's been thrown around is this integrity of the tournament. The Champions League, if it makes any sort of a tweak, whether it's away goals or where matches are played, does the integrity of the tournament uh, go away or, or is that just something that just gets thrown around? Does that term even mean anything? Um, yeah, I think it does completely. I think any tournament that you change halfway through is going to have its integrity damaged. And we've already talked about it. They don't know how to finish it. And the traditional format has to be disrupted. And whether that's advantages to teams by not playing in their home crowd, like Will says in front of the Bernabeu, whether it's disadvantages by teams not being able to play in front of the home crowds it, it kind of it changes the whole optics of the competition essentially and the, the the very reason they have the home and the away legs is to be able to play in front of their home teams and in their home countries and to have the advantages and disadvantages of travel and to make it feel like a european tournament so yeah by getting rid of that i think it is always going to damage the integrity but at the same time i completely understand that the tournament does need to be completed in some way and just cancelling the Champions League or whatever competition it is halfway through isn't really an option at this stage because it makes it incredibly challenging to then continue the next season. Should we move on to our final question? Yes, yep. I have got yep. one here from Oscar G. Snowball, if that is your real name. Fantastic. Uh, which player has <laughs> underperformed the most this season? Jim? I love finishing these podcasts uh, with an excuse just to slag someone off. Um, so I'm going to go with every single West Ham player. Just the whole lot of them. All underperformed this season. I mean, you've got Anderson, who's been really disappointing and disinterested for most of the season so far. Sebastian Haller, who had a massive price tag, just not lived up to the price tag he's been landed with. He's shown flashes, but maybe he's lacked a bit of support. Maybe that's a little bit unfair. Balboa, who we signed for around £4.5 million the season before and now is looking like a £4.5 million player. Uh, Pablo Zabaleta, who's aged 10 years in one season, impressively. Manuel Lanzini, <laughs> who's just looking massively lightweight. Carlos Sanchez, who could be the worst signing ever brought into West Ham. And that is a team who wow. once signed Benny McCarthy about four years and five stone too late. So, I mean, all of those could be tipped for an underperforming player. But I think... Now, this goes slightly against what I class as an underperforming player, because for me, an underperforming player is someone who came in with high expectations and just failed to reach those expectations. So it's normally someone who has a massive price tag, for example, and hasn't quite lived up to it. But if this isn't the case with Roberto, West Ham's calamitous goalkeeper, because he didn't come in with high expectations. He came up with, in with the expectations that he would be able to keep goal with some kind of standard, would be able to stop the ball going into the net, would maybe be able to play games without throwing the ball into his own net. They were the expectations, which are fairly low for a goalkeeper, and he's failed to reach those. He didn't even manage that. Out of all the games he played, I think it was 10 games, West Ham managed two points, one win, and that was in a cup game against Newport County. And then he's gone off to Alves in Spain on loan. So in terms of not meeting expectations and underperforming, not being able to actually play in goal when you're a goalkeeper, I think <laughs> box ticks for me. <laughs> well, uh, Jim's gone in two-footed on West Ham, so I can I can leave the entire Hammer squad out. Away. <laughs> uh, you're 100% right about Roberto. I, I honestly think he, he is the worst goalkeeper I've ever seen in the Premier League. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a, a Newcastle player. Marley's not gonna like this because I know he likes to defend anyone that wears black and white stripes. Uh, Jolinton, dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Um, I think the kind of uh, underperforming checklist that Jim just mentioned of came in for a high fee, had a bit of a reputation when he arrived, so much expectation. Jolinton ticks all of them boxes and he's been awful. Uh, I, I don't think it's quite Ali Dia uh, territory when he, he signed for Southampton, but given everything that surrounded his signing, it's just been a disaster. And and I think even if you give him a bit of a break and you go, yeah, he's had to deal with this, he's had to deal with this. And in fairness, I know there's been issues with homesickness and, and a few other things that in his personal life, but just the sheer absolute basics of here is the ball, here is the goal. Why don't you two get a bit better acquainted? He's, it's <laughs> awful. Like he looks, I, I don't know whether it's, it's, whether he looks completely out of his depth or he's never played up front before. I don't know whether there's been sort of, sort of a mistake in the Newcastle scouting network and that he's actually a brilliant right back um, and he's just been thrown up front and he doesn't really seem to know what he's doing. Um, there's a great video online of um, a friendly they had last week where he, he scored, throwing comes in, he miscontrols it, somehow manages to get past the defender and score and it's been, you know, kind of heralded as that Burkamp goal against Newcastle or Henri's back heel against Charlton. Um but he's been awful. He's been absolutely awful. Knowing my luck, he's probably going to come back and bang in 15 goals between now and the end of the season. And and Marley's, Marley's just going to spend the rest of his life laughing in my face. But yeah, he's been awful. And Newcastle have got a bit of a, a reputation for hiring terrible strikers. But he, for me, is right up there. He's been really, really bad. You can't, you can't help but thinking that maybe Newcastle's season would have gone very differently with a good man at the front of that three as well. Because they've got the creative players behind it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anybody. Uh, Will, who's yours then? Um, so I've gone for someone who's been in the Premier League for a number of seasons now, and he's probably someone that I want to perform better for with my England hat on, and that's Deli Alley. Um, yeah. I think there's been a group of players ever since we had that monumental World Cup campaign, like Trippier, Ashley Young. Obviously, they're a bit older, and but especially I think this applies to Deli Alley, where they've just yeah the, the form's just completely dropped off at the start of the season he, he was in and out of the team and then Jose Mourinho came and oh, I can't remember the first I think was it Palace there was the first game of Mourinho's tenure and Deli Alley looked like a completely new new man a reborn midfielder scoring goals setting up assists I mean this season he's played 24 times eight goals which I think most of the goals probably came in that really hot spell and then since what probably about February March, he seems to have just gone gone back around. I think he dropped uh, dropped all the sponsor sort of requirements that he had. I mean, I remember interviewing him about fortnight for a, a Boohoo Man launch. So maybe that was one of the distractions. Maybe I'm to blame. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think somebody's taking responsibility. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's what you should do, isn't it? Um, but I just really think he could be a world class midfielder, like a world class number ten. And I just really want him to live up to that potential because he's just going to get dwarfed by people like Grealish and Madison who are coming through for England. Yeah, it's a great shout. Do you think we are going to see him return to form? or do Because sometimes players just hit that point, particularly number 10s, actually. They hit that point where their form drops off and they just vanish into the ether and they become Jack Grealish. Well, I think it's that thing as well. You think of the amount of games he's played as well. Like, for how old is he? 24? I think he's nearly on like five, six hundred games as well. So I don't know. 
Maybe you might do with Michael Jordan and have a year out of the game, go and play table tennis professionally and then come back and be a reignited man. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, right, that's all we've got time for on today's Football Social Daily podcast. It is the AQA show. You can get your questions in for next week. We might do it slightly differently next week. So obviously we're going to have football to talk about as well. We need to work that out. But at the Sports Social on Twitter, Sports Social Official on Instagram, or you can go to sport-social.co.uk where you'll also find all the details of how you can find us on your Amazon Alexa or your Google Home device when you want the latest match reports from the games as they happen, as they start again next Wednesday. Fergal, Will, thank you very much for today's podcast, and we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Slow-cooked, succulent meats delivered fast to your door. Search for us via Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.